Hello, good evening and welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Straight Talking English. It is the final episode of Season 2. <gasps> woe, woe and sadness. Is there ever a story of more woe than that of Juliet and her Romeo? All the story of Season 2 of Straight Talking English, which has mostly been tragedies. I am your host as ever, Catherine. STR8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and purveyor of all kinds of fine revision resources. We're going to talk about reactions today because Romeo and Juliet is a play that has been discussed so, so, so many times by so many smart people and there are so many interpretations and viewpoints out there that you could easily apply these to your understanding of the play there's always another angle on things and it's actually really difficult to detach what we think and what's been presented to us the writer ian munro says the play has become the western love story supplanting its predecessors in the cultural imagination the play has acquired an already told mythical quality the famous actor john gilgood who played romeo in a really famous production in 1947 said the protagonists are symbolic immortal types of lovers of all time and it's one of these like weird things about shakespeare where it's like oh he has a genius of all time his work echoes down the centuries and like yeah yeah i'll give you a lot of that but it isn't just like his work existed in isolation people have perpetuated this if he'd have written stuff and then everyone forgot about it then it wouldn't it's because generations of people have been carrying on these stories so before the like the middle of the 20th century it was a love story we are seeing this is a story about love but the writer Lolin in the latter half of the 20th century Romeo and Juliet has been transformed in production and perception from a play about love to a play about hate modern productions have tended to emphasize the feud over the love story and have used it to comment on a variety of social ills and it's true it's true most plays most like productions of it are set somewhere with conflict in order to make a point about something so the production i cite quite a lot is the one about gay footballers two boys play for opposing football teams but they fall in love therefore it's making a point about homophobia in sport which is bad monroe again we the audience are often led to imagine the players happening again as if it were in a new setting and it's this timeless thing again like we are encouraged to transplant it in our minds into any point i mean i'm as guilty of this as anyone else because uh, my traditional project when i was in the classroom is if i finished the shakespeare uniet uniet unit early as i'd get there's class to write their own version of it and honestly if you are in a classroom or if you are bored get a young person to do this because oh my gosh i had one about two robots and one had a micro usb pool and one had a lightning pool and they could not be together i've had dogs i've had cats i've had arsenal and then arsenal ladies players competing for money they are bad but the point is like that's quite a modern concept 
Let's think a bit about the life story of this work of literature. It was first written and performed 1596-ish. 1599 it's published. 1662 it pops up because the famous diarist Samuel Pepys got dragged to the theatre to see it. And I love this, I love this so much. He said it is the worst I ever saw of my life and the worst I ever saw people do. I'm like... I mean, it's bad. I mean, we've all been like, I really can't stand this anymore. And I think about a week ago in my research hole, I was just like, I need to read like a book that's not about Romeo and Juliet. But yeah, it's officially the worst. 1697, we've got a really interesting turn. This writer called Thomas Otway adapted Romeo and Juliet to make a really critical social point. Banishment and civil strife were his key themes in this. And his version used the idea that civil blood makes civil hands unclean to anatomise a corrupt, chaotic society and counsel reformation and reconciliation. Because there was a big old crisis. Remember back to Macbeth when I was banging on about the Catholics? After Charles II was on his way out and it was clear he was childless, his brother James II was the heir, but he was one of them Catholics and it became called the exclusion crisis because can we get rid of him because he's a catholic but he's the rightful heir and this was resolved when uh, james ended up being kicked off the throne by his daughter anne in no, daughter Mary, sorry, get it in the right order. His daughter Mary with assistance from her husband. And they passed something called the Exclusion Act, saying you cannot sit on the throne if you're a Catholic. But this version by Otway, literally the purpose of it was to preach on a soapbox about reconciliation between two sides. And that was relevant at the time and I really like this. A very notable production which honestly I just have to share with you because this is awful and I don't want to suffer alone. In 1744 a director called Theophilus Kibber recounted a production starring himself as Romeo and his 14 year old daughter as Juliet. Let that sink in for a second. I'm feeling a little bit nauseous. That is that is just awful. That is Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra singing Baby It's Cold Outside. No, no. We'll fast forward a little bit. Fast forward, let's move on with our lives after that fact. By the time we get to the 19th century, there's concerns about the morality of the play. There's a really famous um, kids version of Shakespeare called Tales from Shakespeare, written by Charles and Mary Lamb. And you can get that like anywhere now. It's really popular and it's very friendly. But in the advert for it, it explicitly said, nothing is added to the original text, but those words and expressions are omitted, which cannot with propriety be read to a family. So this is not appropriate for children. The irony that so many of us study it in school, yeah, I know, not appropriate. And I have found the bits that were taken out. So Mercutio says, the baldy hand of the dial is now on the prick of noon, in which it is implied that he has an erection. I just, I just needed to point that out. It's a sundial joke. And the word prick became um, replaced with point, the point of noon. Or when Romeo is talking about Rosaline and he says, nor open her nap, her lap 
to saint seducing gold no no talk of laps ah, while all this moralizing was going on and we're talking about why you can't say the baldy hand of the dial is now on the prick of noon and i can get away without i can get away with saying that to be honest because um it's in the play play was embraced by the romantics boom everything's coming together think back to season one i will remind you romanticism with a big R is a movement within art literature all kinds of creative forms that emphasize the display of pure emotion as opposed to using like formulaic modes of expression we are expressing our emotion of course the irony is that the amount of sonnets in that play and they are all like mass produced but we'll ignore that we'll ignore that samuel coleridge the poet especially massive massive hearts hearts and flowers for this play because it's argued that against society's conventions they find a way to have genuine emotion which means there's an element of heroism in it for our romantic brethren fast forward to the 20th century i i feel like i feel like this is a controversial episode because i've already said uh, naughty words one of my clients she was moaning to me about her main teacher and i was like oh what's wrong with that and she says oh she's a feminist and i'm like all right all right um what exactly is wrong with that and the temptation when we talk about feminist interpretations is that people stop listening turn off and they're like oh well, she's gonna talk about why men are bad and honest to god really really no like some of us some people give the rest of us a bad name looking through the lens of like focusing on the male female aspects of the play though is really interesting big writer in this area is Coppelia Khan she argues it's this patriarchal setting of Verona which can Connects with the English audience of the time, though the world the world of the play presents it on a massive tragic scale. Everything is defined from the prologue onwards as being their parents' strife, their parents' rage. And this feud is fostered and perpetuated by the older generation. If they're growing up, if Romeo and Juliet are growing up within this feud then they're being socialized into these patriarchal roles the feud emphasizes familial identities even to the extent of determining the social relationships young capulets and montagues can enter into furthermore for the sons the feud provides an adolescent space where they can prove themselves men by phallic violence on behalf of their fathers instead of by the courtship and sexual experimentation that would lead towards marriage and separation from the paternal house. The feud thus sustains an intensified version of patriarchy that keeps the sons in a tightly endogamous relationship with their father. So basically, because the feud is carried on by this older generation, this older group of men, the sons are encouraged to just be violent rather than take 
part in a whole range of activities from a whole range of people that could lead to independence. Even love in this feuding society is merely another form of regret of aggression. And we're going to come on to this in a little bit because this play is full of sexual violence. Khan argues the conflict between manhood as aggression on behalf of the father and manhood as loving a woman is at the bottom of the tragedy and not to be overcome. It's so basically because Romeo can't express this other side of himself which is masculinity within a relationship that means that in fact that determines a lot more of the play now I've got a lot of sympathy for Capulet so I'm gonna disagree with Khan on this but she says while Romeo roams the street with his friends and never shares the stage with his parents Juliet is kept within Capulet spaces her role as a Capulet daughter is to secure a patriarchal future Capulet looks to Juliet to provide him with future heirs his patriarchal authority over his daughter is shown to be despotic as he changes his mind about the speed with which Juliet should be married and violently threatens his daughter with disinheritance when she proves unwilling Khan draws a parallel between Capulet and Tybalt as both men react with sudden violence to potential threats to their sense of order the nephew shares the standards upheld by his uncle and there is it is tempting isn't it to think that the underlying like masculinity the underlying patriarchal standards cause a lot of this tragedy novi argues that romeo's love of julia isolates him from his friends not simply because of the feud because of the way the male youth of verona think about women and sex novi points out that neither benvolio nor mercutio are fanatical about the montague calls and might not object to Juliet for being Capulet, but the aggressively baldy masculine conception of sexual relationships prohibits Romeo from sharing news about his marriage. Romeo laments that, oh sweet Juliet, thy beauty hath made me effeminate. Like, to be in love is to not be a man. To accept that there are romantic sentimental feelings makes it like makes him have so much less standing and in fact the whole play is really really rooted in context of the time i mean like we say the yeah yeah yeah, it's timeless blah 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 i know you can tell that i'm not buying this and neither is callahan this writer from 94 we've got this movement in society from a feudal like clan system to a centralized state the shift makes the prince a major figure in the play as he wrestles authority from the montague and capulet patriarch this process is not separate from the love story because the reconceptualization of sexual desire is integral to the prince's project the plays a hinge between old and new the meaning of the young love is split prince aeschylus could be the play's pivotal figure rather than the tragic couple 
literally, I quite get that. If he hadn't smacked down the law, if he hadn't insisted on these penalties, if he hadn't threatened punishment for the perpetrators rather than something collective, then it could have happened different. Maybe Prince Aeschylus, as like he is the key to the whole thing. And then you think at the end, where the prince finally accepts the two lovers, it's like a weird reversal of a wedding. Like, because they're finally accepted by everybody. Weird. And then they finally have Death as the Bridegroom. It's also, and I really, really like this. I think it's, there's also an interpretation that it's about financial independence. One aspect of their freedom is freedom from the financial consideration that determine feudal marriage arrangements. Romeo tries to pay the nurse and they have a load of metaphors when they talk about reclaiming the monetary consequences of their relationship. So they are like, not only do we own our own love, but we also own our own money. For example, oh dear, account my life in my foe's debt. As that vast shore washed with the farthest sea, I should adventure for such merchandise. They are but beggars that count their worth, but my true love has grown to excess. I cannot sum up some of half my wealth and in that one Juliet redefines wealth as love rather than what her dad has which is like literal wealth my days I kind of I do kind of love that I've got two more different weird ways of reading the play that might be interesting to you one of them is about and gender reversal as I mentioned, Romeo says that he's effeminized by Juliet's love. And that thing of arise dis arise dear sun and kill the envious moon. Or is it fair sun? I don't know, I'm quite tired. It's nearly nine at night while I'm recording this. This writer called Goldberg argues that Juliet is masculinized when he says this because it's an ancient Greek legend that the male god Apollo replaces the moon um, goddess Diane. She, we know that Juliet is quite um, quite eager to be with Romeo. Quite eager, shall we say. And like, that would be a tradi traditionally masculine attribute. Her soliloquy before her wedding night, which I absolutely refuse to try and pronounce the name of again, is traditionally from a male point of view. Quite a lot of this play is determined by what Goldberg calls a homosocial order. The whole structure is determined by relations between men. So we've got Romeo and Paris fighting over the body of Juliet. Capulet and Paris like trading Juliet. Romeo and Tybalt are enemies but they're also connected by Juliet. Everything is kind of linked by male relationship. And even at the point where Juliet asserts herself, she could be argued that she's becoming male. Remember, back in the first half, way back, Lady Macbeth on Sex Me Here. It's kind of like that. We also need to talk about the crime, when it is a legal crime at this point, called sodomy. Now, you might hear it from, like, old people, but it literally means male homosexual sex. But at this point, think of sodomy as being 
any kind of sexual intercourse that is not between a married couple and like for the purposes of procreation in that case romeo and juliet's secret marriage falls within this crime and this same like catch-all as homosexual sex as i've mentioned in the bad boys episode male male relations at this point are what we would consider to be a little bit friendly i was explaining to my partner earlier that in tudor times there is absolutely nothing wrong with giving a male friend if you're a boy a kiss on the lips to say thank you for something nice they've done he did not go for that as a tradition but like this is what the world is like and see it as like transgressive relation it's a really interesting way of seeing it content warning and i think this is the only time i've had to do a content warning this season the next bit i'm going to talk about is about sexual violence so at this point if you are not comfortable with a reasonably academic discussion of sexual violence for whatever reason goodbye now thank you very much for listening have a great time Bing, no harm, no foul. If you are still listening, fab. Because there is a huge theme of sexual violence in Romeo and Juliet. Focusing first on the scene at Juliet's window, the writers Robert Watson and Stephen Dickey see Romeo as being potentially menacing. Romeo stares at Juliet for 49 lines before telling her he's there. And Juliet makes it clear that she could not see him i do not know about you but if someone stood there saying 49 lines of poetry to me it would be very threatening there's allusion to many different famous literary figures from classical literature all of whom we could argue today are rapists for example hades Persephone was raped by Hades, the god of the underworld, having eaten seeds from an underworld pomegranate tree. There's allusions to this in the ba- in uh, Juliet's soliloquy, where she wishes for the nightingale. Where she, yeah, she mixes up the nightingale and the other birds. The nightingale is sitting in a pomegranate tree. When she prevents Romeo from leaving, she claims to hear the song of the nightingale rather than the lark. In the ancient Roman poet Ovid's work. A girl called Philomel is transformed into a nightingale after being raped by her brother-in-law Terius. Writers use this to emblematise sexual violence. The bit where he wishes he were a glove upon her cheek is an Elizabethan thing where poets fantasise about transformation into a, a beloved's garters. So where creepy poets would say they wished they were clothing on an intimate area of their beloved and believe me it's just as creepy as it sounds i'm actually skipping over some bits in my source book that i do not want to share with you it's argued that romeo is here presented as a potential predator and not the harmless sonneteer of most criticism it would be easy to misread this argument as a crude attack on romeo that rests on dubious associations but the point is not that romeo is is a fully-fledged sexual miscreant, but that Shakespeare fosters a sense of uncertainty about his actions through elusive hints in a charged situation. Juliet is necessarily alert to the possibility this young Montague is attempting a disingenuous seduction to score points against an enemy. Bear in mind that the first scene, again this is skipped over quite a lot, but 
the first scene where the servants are talking they do talk about like pushing girls around it kind of makes a lot of sense juliet would be nervous the the male violence and the discussion of aggressive sexual pursuit are in this but it depends whether you see it as a comedy stereotype from the time at no point am i implying that assault is comedy however for an elizabethan it could be sort of a mother-in-law joke style you know like it's old it's a little bit smutty no or how seriously do we take this we know Mercutio is full of jokes, we know Mercutio is satire. So is it making a point about the kind of permissions which are going on? Because, let's face it, nothing is witnessed by anybody. So, to an outsider, there would be no hint about the nature of consent in their encounters and when you think about it it is kind of horrible even the name paris for her other suitor is named after the ancient greek hero who starts the trojan war by stealing a woman great brilliant cool but we can also say that through juliet's eagerness it's quite clear that she does consent my final note on Romeo and Juliet. My final fault, Jerry Springer style Everything I've said, everything I've interpreted from the text and from my own detective work can easily be undone or done or done something differently by a director. All of this, as this is a play designed for performance, when someone is directing, they make those decisions about inclusion, about how they're going to tell the characters, the actors, to play the characters. It would be very easy to ask the actor playing Romeo to do it in a very aggressive way. It would be very easy to pre present a very soppy Romeo. Think again, now you're quite familiar with the play through my rambling. Watch again either the Zeffirelli or the Lerman or any other famous production. See what the directors put in, see what the director's taken out and think about how that's been used to present this story. Is it a tragedy that's written in the stars and would never work? Is it a sad story that is influenced dramatically by a series of coincidences. Is this a play about the old older versus the new? Is this a play about violence? Is this a timeless play? Is this a love story? You decide. Look at what other directors have done and then make up your own mind. Bang! Mic drop! We are out of here! We are done with Shakespeare! I can't actually drop my mics. I'm using one of those little uh, 360 conference mics. But imagine i'm dropping it dramatically so big announcement season three i i'm already hyped about this to be honest i'm very hyped about this we are tackling the victorian 
GCSE lit novellas, novels, etc. With a mix of context, with a mix of bonuses, with a mix of all kinds of fabulous stuff. The plan at the moment is we're going to cover Jekyll and Hyde. We are going to cover Christmas Carol. I forgot the name of it. We're going to cover Sign of Four by Conan Doyle. And I could be convinced to do Frankenstein if someone asked me really nicely. Season three is the Victorian season. We are going into the wonderful world of the Victorian underworld. We are going to talk about Mr. Hyde trampling someone like a damn juggernaut. We are going to talk about the miserly Scrooge, a solitary as an oyster. And we're going to talk about the heroic and intelligent Sherlock Holmes, not the Benedict Cumberbatch one, but the actual one, kind of a crazy violin-playing opium addict. Please keep the hype going. Thank you so much for listening to this season. Honestly, so much love. Much love for you all, because I'm really happy that y'all are listening and y'all are enjoying it, because you keep following me. Stay tuned. There's going to be a little bit of a break between season two and season three, because I need to do my research, basically. And I can't record and research at the same time or I'm going to end up like just talking rubbish. Talking about DLR or something. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your ears. Friends, Romans, countrymen, I bid you a temporary adieu. And I will speak to you very soon.